Today's read, Asada, an autobiography written by Asada Shakur, chapter 11. On July 19, 1973, while I was still at the Middlesex County Workhouse, I was brought to the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of New York in Brooklyn, which has jurisdiction over all federal crimes committed in the counties of Brooklyn and Queens. I was taken there by federal writ to be arraigned on an indictment in which Andrew Jackson and I were accused of having robbed a bank in the county of Queens on August 23, 1971. While there were a lot of indictments against me all over New York State that I didn't even know about that summer, this is one I surely could not have missed because the bank surveillance photo taken of the woman holding up the bank with a gun was put on wanted posters that were pasted up in every subway station, posted in every bank and post office, and blown up in full-page newspaper advertisements. They hit the streets on August 24, 1971, and remained, even after my arrest on May 2, 1973. Under the photo was the name Joanne Deborah Chesimard. Above the photo were the words, Wanted for Bank Robbery, $10,000 Reward. After the feds took a mugshot of me and fingerprinted me, I was arraigned pled not guilty and was returned to the workhouse on the same day. I heard nothing further about this indictment until January 1st, 1975, when the feds brought me back to the Eastern District Court. Only this time, it was to have me photographed. The prosecutor has made a motion to have me photographed in the same angle, wearing the same kind of glasses, wig and dress as the woman who had been photographed by the bank cameras during the robbery. The judge, a notorious racist pig, is sure to grant the motion. I have decided to refuse. As far as I am concerned, the reasons are obvious. You put anybody in a monkey suit and they're going to end up looking like a monkey. Besides, Someone had told me about some trick the FBI uses. They take a photo of you in the same angle as the bank photo and superimpose a transparency of the bank photo over it. If you are unfortunate enough to have two eyes, a nose, and lips in more or less the same place, you end up looking like the bank robber, no matter what you really look like. When I was arraigned, I had permitted them to take all the photographs of me they wanted and that, as far as I was concerned, was enough. We enter the courtroom. The judge is on the bench. The courtroom has been rearranged. FBI agents with cameras are standing on top of tables. A group of federal marshals are buzzing around nervously like flies that smell rot. They are waiting for action. Evelyn gets up and says her piece. The judge ignores what she is saying and orders me to be photographed. I refuse, stating my objections as strongly as I can. In a hot second, the marshals and the FBI agents are crawling all over me.
They seem to be trying to jerk my head off my shoulders. The judge has ordered that I am to be photographed today, now, and that all the force necessary to take the pictures in the way the FBI wants to take them is to be used. The FBI, the marshals, and I end up on the courtroom floor with me on the bottom. I hear Evelyn in the background. Let the record reflect that the marshals are twisting my client's arms behind her back. Let the record reflect that the marshals are choking my client. Let the record reflect that there are five marshals manhandling my client. Evelyn goes on and on while the marshals twist me, jerk me, strangle me, kick me, and literally try to beat me into submission. The assault goes on and on with Evelyn putting it blow by blow into the record. Finally, it's over. The marshals lead me back into the holding pen. I lie on the bench like a rag doll with the stuffing hanging out, feeling like I have just been stampeded by a herd of buffalo. Evelyn comes back for a lawyer's visit. She looks just as tired as I feel. That was unbelievable, she exclaims. How's your arm? Are you okay? More or less, I tell her. My body is aching and my bad arm is numb. I sit back, marveling at how cool Evelyn has been. It dawns on me how hard it must have been for her to watch what was happening and then calmly put it into the record. I am amazed at her control. She insists that a nurse be called to check me out. Did you hear that shit, she asked me. Yeah, I heard it. I can't wait for the record to be transcribed. If they don't erase it, I think we've got that dumb asshole right on the record. If they don't erase it, then we can get the stupid moron off the case. Evelyn is looking triumphant and defiant like she has just put her foot up somebody's butt. What the hell are you talking about? I want to know. Didn't you hear him? He said right on the record that he thought you were guilty. He admitted he was prejudiced right on the record. Didn't you hear him? I'm afraid I was otherwise occupied. What does it mean? It means we'll be able to get rid of his stupid ass. Anybody else is bound to be better. This judge is out to hang you and he'll go to any limits to try and convict you. If we're forced to go to trial in front of him, I'm afraid the only shot we'll have is in an appeals court. I sure hope they don't erase the record. Evelyn and I sit there, speculating on the chances of the record being changed. Evelyn thinks the judge is too dumb to even realize what he said. I am afraid that the judge will review the transcript and then have it changed. Evelyn thinks the judge is too racist and too arrogant to be worried about the record. It turns out that she is right. She files a motion based on the transcript to have the judge relieved from the case. After what seems like forever, the judge is removed and a new judge is assigned. But before I went to trial on this case, the powers that be decided that I must first be tried on a state 
kidnapping case in Brooklyn Supreme Court. I had been accused of kidnapping a drug dealer for ransom on December 28, 1972. Evelyn was my lawyer, and there were two co-defendants. One was Rima Olubala, Melvin Kearney, a member of the Black Liberation Army and well-known to me. The other co-defendant was a young brother by the name of Ronald Myers. The pretrial motions were permeated by an aura of paranoia. Mine, no one I knew had ever heard of Ronald Myers, and no one understood why he had been targeted for this particular frame-up. In fact, I wondered if he was some kind of plant. It all seemed so strange. Finally, we had a joint conference, which was arranged by a court order. I asked Rima about Ronald Myers. Rima told me that as far as he was concerned, Ron was just a brother who happened to have the misfortune of being framed along with us. An unsuspecting victim. But everything in this case was so strange that I couldn't figure it out. A joint legal conference was arranged between Ronald Myers, his lawyer, a young black lawyer by the name of James Carroll, Evelyn, and me. Immediately upon seeing this brother, most of my suspicions disappeared. He was 19, but looked like he was about 16. He had a quiet, soft, honest manner that I didn't think any police agent could feign. He seemed to be just as perplexed and out of it as we were. As I listened to him talk, I felt a kind of motherly protectiveness toward him. We were revolutionaries, supposedly prepared for such things. For years, we had been preaching about and denouncing pig conspiracies to kill and imprison black political activists, but looking at this soft-eyed young black man, the thing seemed that much more horrible. Those were very cynical days, and we had developed very cynical attitudes to deal with it all. We had become masters at telling bitter, angry jokes about justice and equality and democratic freedom. But seeing this brother awakened such a sense of righteous indignation in us, so-called veterans, that we were all bitten by a sudden burst of energy. I poured over the discovery material and the police records tirelessly. Rima was tense, mysterious, and determined in his manner. We knew that the state was out to get us, and we were more determined than ever not to let them. The guards came and tore my cell apart. It was clear they were looking for something. Standing on chairs, kneeling on all fours, they reminded me of bloodhound bitches. They seemed desperate. I tried to speculate on what they were looking for. One of the black guards, who was halfway decent, was looking funny at me. Another guard, who had always been hostile, looked smug. Shortly after they left my cell, I tried to hook up with the wire to see what was going on. And finally, I got the news. Rima Olukbala was dead. He had plunged to his death while trying to escape from the Brooklyn House of Detention. The makeshift rope that he was using to lower himself 
had broken. I felt too numb to do anything or say anything. Some of the sisters helped me piece my cage together. There was nothing to say. Another black man had died trying to be free. Everything was boiling up inside me. I had to do something and most of my options seemed absurd. It wasn't what I would like to have done. It didn't say half of what I wanted to say, but I guess it was the best thing I could have done at the moment. I wrote a poem for Rima Olukbala, Youngblood. They think they killed you, but I saw you yesterday. Standing with your hands in your pockets waiting for the real deal to go down. I saw you smiling, your fuck it smile, blood in your eyes, your heart pumping freedom. Young blood, they think they killed you. But I saw you yesterday in the playground, black skin, sweaty, shiny, hurling your ball bomb into the hoop right on target. Won't be no game next time because you ain't hardly playing. They think they killed you, but I saw you yesterday with your back against the wall, muscles bulging against the chains, eyes absorbing truth, lips speaking it, heart learning how to love, head learning who to hate, blood ready to flow towards freedom. Young blood. Young bloods ain't got no blood to waste. In no syringes, on no barroom floors, in no strange lands, delaying other young bloods' freedom. We don't need no tired blood, no anemic blood, no blood clots in our new body. They think they killed you, but I saw you yesterday. All them young bloods must have gave you a transfusion. All that strong blood, all that rich blood, all that angry blood flowing through your veins toward tomorrow. The next time we went to court, I went when I saw the empty chairs. Slouching listlessly, I thought about Rima, completely unaware of what was being said. There was talk about this hearing and that hearing and this motion and another, and none of them made the slightest sense to me. But Evelyn was on the case, letting nothing slide by, citing all of her objections for the record. I was bored to death, completely out of it, until the jury selection process began. There were two prosecutors, one exceedingly ugly, lynch mob-looking fat guy, and another thin-bearded, wolfman-looking dude, rather on the young side. I don't even remember their names. The judge's name was William Thompson, and he was a black man, which surprised me. I guess they assigned the case to him because they were so sure we would be convicted, and they figured a black judge would at least give the illusion of justice. 
Thompson was somewhat of a character who rarely sat up on the bench but constantly walked around the courtroom. While he clearly could not by any stretch of the imagination be accused of ruling in our favor, and his political career would certainly not have been helped by our being acquitted, nevertheless, the courtroom didn't have that out-and-out lynch mob atmosphere we usually encountered. The jury selection process really stood out in my mind. If anyone can write a book about how a black lawyer can pick a jury and eliminate hostile, racist, prejudiced jurors from the panel, then Evelyn is surely the one to write the book. I was fascinated as I watched her. She was all honey and pie as she started to voir dire the jurors. At first, almost all of the white jurors began by saying they had no prejudices. By the time Evelyn finished asking them questions, we learned they had no black friends or neighbors, would object to their children marrying a black person, or had referred to black people as niggers or some other derogatory name. After a while, many of the whites asked to be excused before Evelyn even asked them any questions. Most of them preferred to be excused rather than have their feelings toward black people, black militants and black panthers questioned and explored. When you think about the fact that the average black defendant on trial gets to ask prospective jurors only a few perfunctory questions, you can see why so many black people end up in jail. Even with Evelyn putting everything she had into picking the jury, it was a long uphill struggle. But at the end, we managed to get four or five black people on the jury, a remarkable accomplishment anywhere in America except for DC. The prosecutor even had the nerve to ask for extra peremptory peremptory challenges so he could bump some of the jurors off the panel. The hardest thing in the world for me was to keep my mouth shut in the courtroom. To sit quietly and suffer silently, Evelyn, well aware of that fact, happily consented to my acting as co-counsel. Although she remained skeptical about my ability to cross-examine major witnesses, she agreed that it would be an excellent idea for me to make the opening statement. Finally, after days of writing under the dim nightlight in the cell, I delivered it. I was nervous as hell since I have never liked speaking in public, but I tried my best to express to the jury some of what I was feeling. Judge Thompson, brothers and sisters, men and women of the jury, I have decided to act as co-counsel and to make this opening statement not because I have any illusions about my legal abilities, but rather because there are things that I must say to you. I have spent many days and nights behind bars thinking about this trial this outrage and in my own mind only someone who has been so intimately a victim of this madness as I have can do justice to what I have to say and if you think that I am nervous your senses do not deceive you it is only because I know that this moment 
can never be lived again and that so much depends on it. I have to read this opening statement to you because I am afraid that if I don't, I will forget half of what I have to say. Please, try to bear with me. This will not be a conventional opening statement. First of all, because I am not a lawyer. And what has happened to me and what has happened to Ronald Myers does not exist in a vacuum. There are a long series of events and attitudes that led up to us being here. When we were sitting in this courtroom during the jury selection process, I listened to Judge Thompson tell you about the American system of justice. He talked about the presumption of innocence. He talked about equality and justice. His words were like a beautiful dream in a beautiful world. But I have been awaiting trial for two and one half years. And justice in my eyesight has not been the American dream. It has been the American nightmare. There was a time when I wanted to believe that there was justice in this country, but reality crushed and crashed through and shattered all my daydreams. While awaiting trial, I have earned a PhD in justice, or rather the lack of it. I sat next to a pregnant woman who was doing 90 days for taking a box of Pampers and watched on TV the pardoning of a president who had stolen millions of dollars and who had been responsible for the deaths of thousands of human beings. For what? For peace with honor? Nixon was pardoned without ever standing trial or being found guilty of a crime or spending one day in jail. Who else could commit some of the most horrendous, destructive crimes in history and get paid 200,000 tax dollars a year? Ford stated that he pardoned Nixon because Nixon's family had suffered enough. Well, what about thousands of families whose sons gave their lives in Vietnam? And what about the millions of people who have been sentenced at birth to poverty, to live like animals and work like dogs? What about the families who have sons and daughters in prison, who cannot afford bail or even lawyers for their children? Where is justice for them? What kind of justice is this, where the poor go to prison and the rich go free? where witnesses are rented, bought, or bribed, where evidence is made or manufactured, where people are tried not because of any criminal actions but because of their political beliefs. Where was the justice for men at Attica? Where was the justice for Medgar Evers, Fred Hampton, Clifford Glover, Where was the justice for the Rosenbergs? And where is the justice for the Native Americans who we so presumptuously call Indians? I am not on trial here because I am a criminal or because I have committed a crime. I have never been convicted of a crime in my life. 
Ronald Myers is not on trial because he has committed a crime. He was 19 years old when he turned himself in after seeing his picture in the newspapers. He thought that the police would immediately see their mistake. I met Ronald Myers for the first time about eight months ago in the lawyer's conference room. It was a strange meeting, something I hope I'll never have to go through again. I was shocked to see how young he was. And no matter what the outcome of this trial, I will always feel a bitterness about what has happened to Ronald Myers and what has happened to me. I do not think that it's just an accident that we are on trial here. This case is just another example of what has been going on in this country throughout America's history. People have been imprisoned because of their political beliefs and charged with criminal acts in order to justify that imprisonment. Those who dare to speak out against the injustices in this country, both black and white, have paid dearly for their courage, sometimes with their lives. Marcus Garvey, Stokely Carmichael, Angela Davis, the Rosenbergs, and Lolita LeBron were all charged with crimes because of their political beliefs. Martin Luther King went to jail countless times for leading nonviolent demonstrations. Why, you are probably asking yourself, would this government want to put me or Ronald Myers in jail? In my mind, the answer to that is very simple. For the same reason that this government has put everyone else in jail who spoke up for freedom, who said, give me liberty or give me death. During the voir dire process, we asked you about the word militant there was a reason for that. In the late 60s and the early 70s, this country was in an upheaval. There was a strong people's movement against the war, against racism in the colleges, on the streets, and in the black and Puerto Rican communities. This government Local police agencies, the FBI and the CIA, launched an all-out war against people they considered militants. We are only finding out now, because of investigations into the FBI and the CIA, how extensive and how criminal their methods were and still are. In the same way that witches were burned in Salem, this government went on a witch hunt for people they considered militant. Countless members, countless numbers of people were either killed or imprisoned. The Berrigans, the Chicago Seven, the Panther 21, Bobby Seale, and thousands of anti-war demonstrators were all victims of this witch hunt justice. Maybe some of you are saying to yourselves, no government would do that. Well, all you have to do is check out for yourselves the history of this country and to look around and see what is going on today. All you have to do is ask yourselves, who controls the government and who are the victims of that control? Since you have been in this courtroom, you have heard the name Black Liberation Army mentioned over and over. 
those of you in the jury have been questioned as to whether you have read or seen on television and what your opinions were about the BLA. Most of you have stated that you thought the Black Liberation Army was a militant organization. You have said that what you have read or heard has come from the establishmentarian media, the major TV and radio networks, the Times, the Post, and the Daily News. I have read the same articles that you have read. I have seen the same news programs that you have seen. When it comes to the media, I have learned to believe none of what I hear and half of what I see, but... I can tell you, if I were just Jane Doe citizen and if I didn't know better, I would have read those articles and come to the <laughs> and come to the same conclusion that Joanne Chesimard, Ronald Myers, and all other people called militants were a bunch of white hating, cop hating, gun toting, crazed, fanatical maniacs fighting for some abstract misguided cause. But 1% of the people in this country control 70% of the wealth. And it is that 1%, the heads of large corporations, who control the policies of the news media and determine what you and I hear on radio, read in the newspapers, see on television. It is more important for us to think about where the media gets its information from the police department or from the prosecutor. No major newspaper or television station has ever asked my lawyers or myself one question concerning anything. People are tried and convicted in the newspapers and on television before they ever see a courtroom. A person who is accused of stealing a car becomes an international car theft ring. A man is accused of participating in a drunken brawl and the headlines read, Crazed Maniac Goes Berserk. During the 70s, the media created a front page headline guaranteed to sell newspapers. The Black Liberation Army, according to them, the BLA was everywhere. Almost every other thing that happened was attributed to the Black Liberation Army. Headlines that are sensational sell newspapers. The media shape public opinion and the results are often tragic. Before you were sworn as jurors, you were asked about your knowledge of what the Black Liberation Army is or what it stands for. However, most of you did say you believed that the Black Liberation Army was a militant organization. I would like to talk about that for a moment. The Black Liberation Army is not an organization. It goes beyond that. It is a concept, a people's movement, an idea. Many different people have said and done many different things in the name of the Black Liberation Army. The idea of a Black Liberation Army emerged from conditions in Black communities, conditions of poverty, indecent housing, massive unemployment, poor medical care, and inferior education. The idea came about because black people are not free or equal in this country.
because 90% of the men and women in this country's prisons are black and third world, because 10-year-old children are shot down in our streets, because dope has saturated our communities, preying on the disillusionment and frustration of our children. The concept of the BLA arose because of the political social and economic oppression of black people in this country and where there is oppression there will be resistance the bla is part of that resistance movement the black liberation army stands for freedom and justice for all people while big corporations make huge tax-free profits taxes for the everyday working person skyrocket while politicians take free trips around the world, those same politicians cut back food stamps for the poor. While politicians increase their salaries, millions of people are being laid off. This city is on the brink of bankruptcy, and yet hundreds of thousands of dollars are being spent on this trial. I do not understand a government so willing to spend millions of dollars on arms to explore outer space, even the planet Jupiter, and at the same time, close down daycare centers and fire stations. I have read the Declaration of Independence, and I have great admiration for this statement. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute new government laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness these words are especially meaningful in the year of this country's bicentennial I would like to help make this a better world for my daughter and for all the children of this world, for all the men and women of this world. But you understand that the BLA is not on trial here. I am on trial here. Ronald Myers is on trial here. And the charge is kidnapping and armed robbery where the so-called victim is a drug pusher, a seller of heroin, a man called James Freeman, we live in New York, and it is impossible not to see the horror, the degradation, and the pain associated with heroin addiction. Most of you have seen the staggering numbers of young lives sucked into oblivion, into walking deaths by the use of drugs. Many of you have seen helpless mothers watch their children turn into nodding skeletons whom they can no longer trust and seeing the dreams, the potential of a whole generation of youngsters drain away down into the bottomless pit of a needle. 
and these victims also have their victims. The countless number of people who have been mugged, burglarized, and robbed by drug-made vampires who care about nothing else but their poison. We will show you that James Freeman is a liar. We will show you that the other prosecution witnesses are all friends, relatives, lovers, or employees of James Freeman, and that they are liars. You will see for yourself that they have conspired and that they have been coached. Men and women of the jury, human lives are serious matters. I have already told you that I have no faith in this system of justice, and believe me, I don't. I have seen too much. If there was such a thing as justice, I wouldn't be here talking to you now. You have been chosen to be the representatives of justice. You and you alone. You have said that you could try this case on the basis of evidence. What I am saying now is not evidence. What the prosecutor says is not evidence. You may or may not agree with my political beliefs. They are not on trial here. I have only brought them up to help you understand the political and emotional context in which this case comes before you. Although this court considers us peers, many of you have had different backgrounds and different learning and different life experiences. It is important that you understand some of those differences. I only ask that you listen carefully. I only ask that you listen not only to what these witnesses say, but to how they say it. Our lives are no more precious or no less precious than yours. We ask only that you be as open and as open and as fair as you would want me to be, us to be, were we sitting in the jury box determining your guilt or innocence. Our lives and the lives that surround us depend on your fairness. Thank you. As the prosecution began its case, one witness after the other took the stand. I don't remember how many there were, but they were a never-ending parade. The trial was a circus. The carefully planned, carefully rehearsed case of the FBI and local New York police began to fall apart from the moment the witnesses were cross-examined. The prosecution was so desperate to get a conviction in this case that they resorted to stupid theatrical devices that backfired. One witness, also a drug dealer, hobbled up to the witness stand with the aid of a cane, looking like he was two steps from the grave. When asked about the source of his injuries, he stated that he had received them several years ago at the time of the kidnapping. Both he and the prosecutor must have forgotten that just a few days ago, he had bebopped into the courtroom to pick me out in an identification hearing, looking perfectly healthy. Under cross-examination, he was forced to admit that he had entered the courtroom just a few days before without any visible limp and without the aid of his cane. He was the only witness who claimed he could positively identify me 
because I had spent weekends at his house, but he didn't know the color of my eyes. The so-called major witness, James Freeman, the supposed victim, told a real tearjerker about his kidnapping and the forced ingestion of drugs during it. The prosecution had lightly glossed over the fact that Freeman was a convicted drug dealer. We knew he was connected with the FBI in some way, but it was not until he was cross-examined by James Carroll, Ronald Myers' lawyer, that the real picture of collusion between him and the FBI came out. Freeman testified that he was a paid informant for the FBI. When asked if he had been paid by the FBI to frame me, he said he couldn't talk about it. At the end of the people's case, our motions for a verdict of dismissal of the indictment were denied, and we put on our defense. Evelyn and Martha Pitts, a good friend of mine, were working around the clock. Since we could not afford to pay investigators, they did all the legwork. Martha, a registered nurse, investigated Freeman's claim of being drugged. Evelyn was running around like crazy after court was over, looking for witnesses to testify. Most of it seemed futile to me since I could not conceive of how one finds defense witnesses in a frame-up. By the time we called our first witness, Evelyn was looking smug and rubbing her hands together. We've got their ass this time, she grinned. They didn't use enough dirt to cover their tracks. And they didn't. Records subpoenaed from the state liquor authority proved that the bar was owned by someone else, not by the witness who had testified to be the owner. The real owner testified that he had closed the bar before the alleged kidnapping, that he had visited it every day during the period of time it had hosted the quote-unquote kidnapping and had locked the door as he left and had given no one permission to use it. The bar had been closed for one year before the alleged crime. The irrefutable and obvious conclusion was that, in fact, there was no bar, no scene of the alleged crime, and therefore no crime. Subpoenaed medical records and expert medical testimony showed that Freeman's stomach contained only a couple of aspirin, hardly supporting his testimony that he had been drugged with some drugs he could not identify which he had been forced to swallow and which had left him knocked out for several hours. Sure enough, on December 8, 1975, after four months of trial, the jury acquitted Ronald Myers and me.